Bow your heads, close your eyes, be still before God. Thank Him for His greatness right now, would you? Ask Him to glorify His name through your life. Holy Father, you are the great, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. You never become weary or tired, and your understanding is inscrutable. We bless you that you give strength to the weary. To him who lacks might, you increase power. You remind us that though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for you, will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Father, all of your promises are true. We affirm that. We thank you that your word is given to us, not only that we might, through its eternal seed have a second birth from above, but we thank you that it is the very instrument the Spirit of God uses to grow us. So with the psalmist, we don't flippantly approach it, we tremble at your word. Help us to hear it and to heed it today. We pray for this week. We confess that we are not our own, that we have been bought at a great price. May we offer ourselves to you as living and holy sacrifices, saying no to our own desires and to yield to your will, your will which is good and acceptable and perfect. Father, we know that we are in a challenging book, but you have given us this book. Even though we may not see all the events that are recorded here in the Revelation, It is nonetheless inspired, it is God-breathed, and you said it is profitable that the man, the woman of God might be adequately equipped for every good work. So help us as we open it to learn from it. May the Spirit of God, the one who inspired it, teach us. Thank you for his helping ministry, and I ask for it today, because without him I can do nothing, but by him all things are possible. And so by his grace, I pray that he would fill me and anoint me and use me And make your word clear to all who are listening, and I ask it in Jesus' holy name, amen. Take God's word, would you, this morning, Revelation chapter 18. If you're joining us for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse. We're about two-thirds through the book in terms of the time that we'll spend here. So we still have quite a ways to go, though it appears we're at the end. The uh, final chapters are indeed the most challenging, and they require a lot of attention in digging into them. I am reminded that there is coming a person in the realm of human history who will command the authority of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He will come with a dynamo. He will come with a power that is deceptive, that is charismatic. He will persuade the peoples of this world to follow him, 
and to worship the evil one, the dragon, Satan, through him. He will be possessed. He will be empowered by Satan. And we've spent three Sundays looking at the religious system that he will set up in the 17th chapter. It's a precursor to a later religious system that will be in full play when you come to Revelation chapter 18. The amazing thing is, is that the Bible writes the future ever before it happens. And only God can do that because only God knows the future. And so there is no other book on the face of planet Earth that has fulfilled prophecy. So as you engage people this week and they say, well, why do you believe what you believe? What makes your belief more legitimate than mine? Your simple answer should be the Bible. Well, why do you believe the Bible? because it's the only book God wrote. And you need to know how you can prove that. One of the lessons in the discovery class is how to prove the Bible is true. And it's a very important lesson. And you should not only know it, you should equip your children to know it. So that as they go off to the university campus where daily the scripture is being attacked, they know how to defend why they believe what they believe. God is setting the stage for the return of His Son, and after the church is raptured, the great tribulation period will unfold, and we've been studying that in chapters 6 through 18. Christ is dead, He's ascended into heaven, but He is coming again, and when He comes again, He will rule with a rod of iron. Now, prophecy is important for you to study, and it is so sad today that many pulpits do not preach the prophetic sections as they relate to the second coming. They say it's too difficult or too controversial. Listen, I believe in the perspicuity of Scripture that God gave us the Word of God so we can understand it. That was one of the hallmarks of the Protestant Reformers, that Scripture is given by God so that you can understand what is being said. And it's important you understand prophecy for several reasons. One, to prepare your own heart. Because we're living in days of great deception where evil seemingly is growing. And unless you understand that God is sovereign, that He is working, that He is orchestrating the circumstances, whether it's in the regathering of Israel into the land that God said would happen in latter times, at the end of time, God said in the days before His Son returns, He would gather the Jews from across the planet and bring them back into the land. We are witnessing those things in our day. And while you study prophecy, it brings a certain set of comfort. It looks like everything is falling apart. And God's word, as you study prophecy, would say, no, it's all coming together. It is happening just as he said. And it's important that you understand prophecy, not just to prepare yourself, but to prepare others, especially your most critical disciples. If you're married and you have children, or even if you have grandchildren, you should be thinking about the next generation and how you can build into them. Now, let me just say parenthetically, this morning's sermon is foundational. We're going to look at just three verses, and I want us to get a little bit of an understanding of the background of this 18th chapter, and it will take us at least three one-hour messages to get through the 18th chapter. We're going to focus on verses 1 to 3, but I want to begin by reading the first eight verses so you have a flavor of where it is that we are headed. Follow along in your Bible. John writes, after these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. 
And he cried out with a mighty voice saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back, even as she has paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds. And the cup which is mixed, mixed twice as much for her, to the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the degree Give her torment and mourning, for she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I am not a widow, and will never see mourning. For this reason, and one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. Now, let me just brief you, bring you briefly into the context, especially for those listening for the first time. The Bible teaches that Christ was dead, buried, risen, ascended from the Mount of Olives into heaven, and he will come back to the earth. Before he comes back to the earth, he will capture, he will take up the church. In a seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation, what we're studying here in the Revelation will unfold. But at the end of that seven-year time frame, he will literally, physically, bodily come to the very mountain that he ascended into heaven from. And when the lost are removed, he will reign upon the earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. He will literally rule for a thousand years. The concept of the Messiah actually having the governments resting on his shoulders, the concept that the promises that God made to the people of Israel, that they would come front and center where the Messiah, a Jew, would rule the world is an Old Testament concept. But the length of that kingdom of a thousand years is revealed to us here in the New Testament. As this next slide reminds you, there are huge differences between the time Jesus came the first time and the time he will come again. When he came the first time, he came as a savior. He gave his life on the cross. He died a substitutionary death, bearing the very punishment that your sin and my sin deserves. But when he comes the second time, he will come as judge. He came the first time in humiliation. He came as a suffering servant. But when he comes the second time, he will come in great exaltation. He will come as a sovereign king. When he came the first time, they crowned him with mockery. But when he comes again, we will crown him with great majesty. He came the first time as a sower in grace. When he comes again, he will come as a reaper in the wrath of God. There was a tree for him to hang upon when he came the first time. When he comes again, there will be a throne on which he will sit. He came in poverty to a cross when he comes the second time. He will come in majesty on a cloud, and he will rule this world with a rod of iron. Now, chapter 19 describes that event when Jesus literally physically comes to the earth. And then chapters 20 to 22 describe what will happen during his reign and the eternal state. 
And we will spend quite a bit of time on that section. But right now, we are dealing in chapters 6 through 18 with that time that precedes the second coming of Jesus to the earth. And chapter 18 is very important for us to understand because it gives us the world conditions that need to be in place before the Messiah sets up his kingdom. It's the most complete picture of a worldwide government led by the Antichrist himself. And more than any other time in all of human history, the economies of the world have come together. That was not true when I was a child. But it is now true in our day. It is virtually impossible for a nation to function without being interdependent on the other nations of the world, whether it's for food or technology or whatever form of trade may take place. That has all happened since I have been born. And Revelation 18 describes a time when it will come to its fullest expression. Now, if you remember, chapters 17 and 18 describe the same city. It is a city called Babylon. The focus of Revelation 17 is what we call religious Babylon. The focus is on these religions of the world coming together under one umbrella. Chapter 18 focuses on the economic aspect, the commercial aspect of Babylon the Great. But it's the same place, and we know that for several reasons. Number one, they're both called Babylon, and not by accident. And I identified for you last time, if you were here, why there is only one city in the whole world that could fit this bill, and it's called Rome. And that's why all the way through the time of the Protestant reformers and as early as the church fathers who live immediately after the apostles, there was full agreement that Babylon here, like Wall Street is a code name for New York, Babylon is a code name, it is a synonym in New Testament times for Rome. And you find that displayed not only in the Word of God, but in literature outside of the Bible and in the earliest writings of God's people. And so there's some commonality. They have the same name. Both chapters 17 and 18 describe religious and economic Babylon being empowered by demonic forces. Both are associated with the kings of the earth. Both are associated with porneia, fornication, immorality. And so if you remember, the formal title of religious Babylon is given in verse 5 of chapter 17. Babylon the Great, which by the way is the same title given for economic Babylon. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. So mystery Babylon is described as the center for religious activity. All of the isms of the world will come together. Buddhism, Zoroasterism, Taoism, Mormonism, Jehovah Witnessism, or whatever it is, and all the isms you can think of will come together under one umbrella. But what is very interesting when you read chapter 17 is that religious Babylon is destroyed by ten kings. It's described as having her flesh eaten and as being burned with fire. They turn on religious Babylon. Yet when we come to chapter 18, the same city is destroyed again. Now, which is it? It's not an either or, it's a both and. There's an aspect in which religious Babylon is destroyed. And it may be very possible that when it describes the literal destruction of religious Babylon with fire, 
that is describing a section of the city of Rome, maybe this section, pictured here with the Vatican. The Vatican, some of you have been there with me. It encompasses 100 acres of land. It is governed by an absolute monarchy, namely the Pope of Rome. It has its own flag. It has its own citizenship that is distinctly different from the rest of the city of Rome. It doesn't have an ambassador, but it has been granted by the United Nations a permanent observer status, distinctly different from the ambassador that represents the rest of the city of Rome and the country of Italy. With that said, I find it very interesting that here in Revelation 17 and verse 12, if you turn back a page, we're told the ten horns which you saw are ten kings. And then in verse 16, he tells us how these ten horns, ten kings, ten nations join with the Antichrist in opposing and destroying mystery religious Babylon. Verse 16 says, and the ten horns which you saw and the beast, that's one of the titles for the Antichrist, These will hate the harlot. The harlot, if you were here in our three messages on chapter 17, represents this one world religion where all the isms are brought together. The ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. Now, the first time you learn of this ten-nation coalition that will come together at the end of time is in the prophet Daniel. Daniel predicts of all these successive kingdoms that will unfold. And then he describes the revived Roman Empire out of Western Europe. Ten nations will come together. Then an eleventh nation will come up among them, a seemingly small nation, a nation that's not that powerful or important. And from that little nation will come the little horn, the Antichrist himself. And so as we studied in chapter 17, somehow both religiously and physically, working with the Antichrist, these ten kings destroy Mystery Babylon, a physical place. And it is a city that is built on seven oris, seven hills or mountains. The Greek word can refer to a hill or to a mountain. And there is only one city, both historically and biblically and geographically, that can fit the bill out of the former Roman Empire, and it is the city of Rome. So it may be, and I'm not saying that the Pope of Rome will be heading this one world religion, but it might be that they will use the property that the Roman church today owns as a headquarters for this particular religious entity. As I showed you some weeks back, the last three popes, in a very definitive way, have moved the Roman Catholic Church towards a one-world type of religion, starting with Pope Paul VI and really all the way through really the last four popes. Pope Francis, however, has been the most aggressive. And just a few weeks ago, last month in February, he signed a document saying that God wills all the religions of the world. Does he? If God wills all the religions of the world, if we are, to quote the Pope, all children of God, then he is mocking and defying the written word of God that God's Son is the only way to heaven and that any other religion is a false religion and only those, as many as those who have received him, have become children of God. You can read the Pope's own words. It is an absolute defiance 
And yet these nations, these peoples are gathering and joining behind this pope. But this religious system will be destroyed. Then in chapter 18, we see another aspect of Babylon, and it is a commercial aspect. Remember, this great city, there are two great cities, two cities called the great city in the Bible, Jerusalem, which is mentioned more than any other city in all of Scripture, and Babylon, which is the most second most mentioned city in all of the Bible. Wherever God has something real, the devil has something that is unreal. He is the great counterfeiter. And just as the Lord Jesus someday will rule from the city of Jerusalem, the Antichrist is going to rule from the city of Rome. And he will pull this, the nations of the world together. And one of the things that he will use will be false miracles. In Revelation chapter 13, it says, He performs great signs so that he makes even fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And this is no sleight of hand. This is a real miracle. And it will convince the most skeptical people, but this is a false miracle in that it does not originate in heaven. It originates in hell, so to speak. The coming of Antichrist, Paul says his coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. And Jesus warned us in the Olivet Discourse that during this period, there would be a number of false messiahs, false Christ, false prophets, all working together, performing great miracles to deceive, if possible, even the elect, but it will not be possible. And of course, during the first half of the tribulation, there will be two witnesses who will preach the gospel along with 144,000 converted Jews, along with an angel who will fly in the heavens and preach God's word. If you're here today and you are not saved, or if you have a false assurance of salvation and the rapture takes place, it will be too late for you. Second Thessalonians 2 is crystal clear. Unlike some popular novels that have been written, oh, so-and-so is witnessing to her husband and his mother was and his brother, and he constantly spurned them and rejected them, and then the rapture happens, and he says, hmm, they must be right, and he gets saved. No, that will not happen. Don't get your theology from a novel. Get it from the Word of God. 2 Thessalonians 2 teaches those who have heard the gospel prior to the rapture will not believe. It will be forever too late for them. But there will be millions who have never heard the gospel. The Great Commission will be fulfilled. Every tongue and tribe and peoples will have representatives who have embraced Jesus as Lord. Jesus said, this gospel shall go out to the whole world and it will happen during this seven-year period, and then the end shall come. But this man will come, and he will try to mimic what God's two witnesses. Remember the two witnesses in Revelation 11? Jesus taught the second coming of Elijah, as did Malachi chapter 4. And one of the things that Elijah did is he called fire down from heaven. Another witness is also with Elijah going to turn the water into blood. And there are two there on the Mount of Transfiguration that prefigured the coming kingdom, Moses and Elijah there in Matthew 17. And so this man will try to imitate God's men. In addition, the most telling miracle that will win 
people like never before, kind of like the raising of Lazarus. The raising of Lazarus, it was not the last miracle of Christ, but it was the catapult of all miracles. It was the climax of all miracles. It was that miracle that turned people to Jesus or away from Jesus. He was brought back to life. And here in Revelation 13, 14, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which was given him to perform in the presence of the Antichrist. He's talking about the false prophet who will deceive those who is given power. And it says that telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had a wound of the sword and has come back to life. Three times in that chapter, I have it underlined in verse 3, his fatal wound was healed of chapter 13. Verse 12, his fatal wound was healed, chapter 13. And then in verse 14, he's wounded with the sword and he's brought back to life. God says it three times over so like you can't miss it. And when this happens, it will be convincing to people. They will believe that he is indeed God's man. But when he goes into that temple, he is not only going to claim to be God, it's what Jesus called the abomination of desolation. But what's going to make his act so sacrilegious is that there will be some kind of a physical structure, some kind of a idol of sorts that will literally actually come to life and speak. And that will open the eyes of every Jew because they will realize that God is not a God of idolatry and therefore this man must be a false Messiah. And so again here in chapter 17 and verse 16, we learned last time in the 10 horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot, this religious entity, and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and burn her up with fire. The honeymoon will be over. Now, we know when this happens. It happens right in the middle of the seven years. The Antichrist will come back to life, and he will convince the world that he is who he claims to be, and he will go into the temple and commit the abomination of desolation. In Revelation 13, verse 3, John says, he records what he saw. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And what did they do? They worshiped the dragon. We know who the dragon is. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself, and most of Revelation interprets itself. And so God in that same chapter tells us the dragon is the serpent of old, the devil, Satan. They worshiped Satan, you could say, because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war against him? What has Satan always wanted? He has always wanted to be worshiped, even there, the temptation in the wilderness. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, just bow down and worship me. That's what made Satan, Satan. He wanted to be worshiped. And of course, this miracle will be so convincing, he will convert them by the billions. This will be Satan's Pentecost. This will be harvest time for him. These 10 kings will hate the harlot and make her desolate and naked and eat her flesh and burn her up. Why? Because at this point, the Antichrist is done with this religious glue that brought all the nations of the world together, and he doesn't want all the isms as option. He wants only one ism, and that's himism. <laughs> it's me or no one else. Exclusivity, 
of worship. You either worship the Antichrist or there's no worship at all. And so verse 17 indicates his plan is not happenstance. It is all working under the permission of a sovereign God. Revelation 17, 17, for God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The king's heart, this is an illustration of Proverbs 21.1, is in the hand of God, and God turns it however he wishes. And so God is using the evil of men to praise him. So here's the big picture, putting it together before we dig into the details. Remember, the next event is the rapture. And there's a small space of time, maybe weeks, days, hours, we don't know exactly, but a small space of time before the Antichrist steps on the scene and makes a covenant with Israel. It's recorded and prophesied in Daniel chapter 9. And Daniel 9 perfectly dovetails with the revelation. He begins the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, a period of time known as seven years split into two halves. During this period of time, there are seven seals. In the seventh seal, which these seven seals happen in the first half of the tribulation, it is God's wrath upon the earth, but not the most expressive wrath. It's like a woman in labor. It increases with time and intensity. It is bad, but it is not as bad as it's going to get under the trumpets and the bowls. And when the seventh seal is opened, all of heaven is quiet for 30 minutes. Because unlike in the seal judgments where you can see just one at a time, when the seventh seal is open, you can see all seven trumpets, and in the seventh trumpet is contained seven bowls, and it just steals your breath away. They know the horror this world is going to face. And so during the first half of the tribulation, the nations are brought together with religious glue. It's the religion of the harlot. But in the middle, when the Antichrist commits what Jesus refers to, quoting Daniel, the abomination of desolation, it moves from the religion of the harlot to the religion of the Antichrist. And this is when his economic system really builds. It's already in existence in the first half, but it builds, it culminates with with the battle of Armageddon and the final bulls of wrath, and then the second coming of Jesus Christ, all right? So that's kind of the big picture. That's where we have been. Now, with that said, God is a God of passion and compassion. God passionately wants to save souls, and He wants to do it out of His mercy. So even during this time, the gospel is being preached. Men and women and boys and girls are giving their life to Jesus Christ. They're coming to know the Lord. Now, with that said, let's look at three truths concerning the fall of Babylon. This is just background that's today. This is kind of a, a theological uh, foundation to build on the rest of the chapter. So pay close attention. This is probably, some would say, the most difficult chapter in all of Revelation. But it is understandable if we will pay attention and listen to what God has to say. So what John does here in these first three verses is he gives us three truths concerning the coming fall of Babylon. The first there in your outline concerns this sentence on Babylon. First, the sentence on Babylon. God already gave us a preview earlier in the 14th chapter 
where he said, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations to drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. But now he says in chapter 18 and verse 1, after these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. Now, we've seen that phrase after these things. This is the seventh time it appears in the Revelation. And each time you see that phrase, after these things, it's introducing us to a, to the, to a new vision, to the next vision. And that's important because the destruction of religious Babylon is over in chapter 17. And now he is moving to the second aspect of Babylon, commercial Babylon. In chapter 17, we saw how the kings of the world were glad when the religious harlot was destroyed. They rejoice, and they are the tool that the Antichrist uses to destroy religious Babylon. But chapter 18 is obviously describing a different description of Babylon because here the kings of the earth mourn greatly. There's great lament when commercial Babylon is destroyed, and it doesn't come from their hand. It comes from the hand of God Almighty. And so after these things, meaning after the angel who speaks at the end of chapter 17, and then after the destruction of mystery Babylon, there is still yet another angel. Now, sometimes people, they create these web pages or they write these books and they come up with all these fanciful, crazy, wacko explanations of what is happening. And it sells books. It really creates a market and it makes some poor man rich. 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Come in 1988. It was a bestseller. He sold 5 million copies. He's a rich man. But it didn't happen, now did it? So another angel, some say, well, this is Jesus. This is not Jesus. This is another angel. Another angel. Now, remember, there are two words. And by the way, the reason they try to build that case, you think, well, how could anyone be so stupid? Well, he is going to come with great shining and glory. And we know that at the end of the bold judgments that were described at the end of chapter 16 that brings Jesus back from heaven, everything gets dark. The sun is basically turned off in terms of its ability to shine light. The moon is turned to a blood red. It is very dark. And this glorious, magnificent, shining angel comes into the world. They say, well, that's Jesus. No, immediately after the tribulation, so at the end of the 70th week, We don't know exactly how many days, maybe it's two, maybe it's three, but remember, all things happen very quickly, Jesus said in the opening verses of the Revelation. But no man can pinpoint the day or the hour. That's a verse not in reference to the rapture, but to the second coming. No man knows the day or the hour. You say, well, this is when the treaty was signed, and if it's 42 months plus 42 months, the second coming must happen on this day. No one knows the day or the hour. Immediately after this 70th week, Sometime short thereafter, Jesus comes back to the earth. And so you read, read the end of Daniel 12. Remember, he talks about 1260 days, and then he talks about some days thereafter, and blessed is the one who perseveres to the end, because those who persevere know the Lord. This is another angel. Now, there are two words for another in Greek, and I think most of you know that by now. There's the word alos and there's the word heteros. We have one word in English. There's two in Greek, and they're important words. And we've seen their importance in the Revelation as to how John uses them. If I ask you for an alos biblios, 
Alos means another of the same kind. You would have to give me, I said, if I said, I want an alos biblios, you'd have to give me another Bible. But if I said, I want a heteros biblios, another book, heteros, it comes into our language, heterosexual or heterodoxy. It means another of a different kind. We are to be committed to orthodoxy, heterodoxy, which is covering the land more and more. That is against the true revelation of Scripture. So if I ask you for a heteros biblios, you could give me another book of a different kind. You could give me a book on running or a book on hunting or in golf or any book that you wanted to give. This is another angel similar to the one that is mentioned in chapter 17. And no one doubts that the guy at the end of chapter 17 is a real angel, but to sell books, they create this angel differently. What do we know about this other angel who's another of the same kind? Well, three characteristics are underscored concerning him. First, he comes with great authority, the Bible says here in the opening verse, and he comes down from heaven. He's coming from the presence of God Almighty. He's coming with great authority. He's coming to act and to speak on God's behalf. Secondly, we are told in addition that when he comes down to the earth, the earth is illumined with his glory. Now, again, if if this happens immediately after the seventh bowl and everything is dark, his glory would really shine. But even if God hasn't turned out the light yet, it's like Jesus on the Damascus road where at noon, when the sun's the highest and brightest in the sky, he still is able to blind Paul at his glorified body. You light a candle during the day and it does nothing. You light it at night and it illumines things. In either case, this angel comes with tremendous glory, much like Moses, who came out of the presence of God and his face shone, much like Stephen, his face shone like an angel. And so Moses covered his face. This angel comes with such incredible blazing light and glory, people see him. Third, we are told he comes with a mighty voice, verse 2, and he cried out with a mighty voice. He is speaking here with heaven's authority. He comes down to earth, he illumines it, and if this is connected with chapter 19, which I think I can show you before I don't, we're done then it's connected with the prophecy that Joel writes of and Daniel mentions. But immediately after the tribulation, Jesus said, Matthew 24, after the tribulation of those days, in other words, the 70th week is over, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the heavens, the power of the heavens will be shaken, And the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with glory and great power. Now, remember, this is one of the parenthetical sections. You remember the parentheses throughout the Revelation. We saw the first one in Revelation 7, where there's a break in the action, and God tells us what is going on during the time of the seal judgments, and there's 144,000 Jewish men who are preaching the gospel to the world. This is one of those parentheses between the last bowl, chapter 17 and 18. Chapter 17 describes what's happening in the first half of the tribulation through this religious harlot. Chapter 18 is primarily focusing what's happening on the second half of the tribulation through this commercial Babylon as well. And so he cried out, verse 2, with a mighty voice saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Repeated twice, I suppose, for emphasis, but maybe just possibly 
because first religious Babylon has been destroyed, but now economic commercial Babylon is going to be destroyed. And so God mentions it twice, and she is going to receive, as we'll see, double for her sins. Now, again, this place, Babylon, I suggested and I hope I demonstrated and proved to you not just from what God gives in terms of the parameters in Scripture, but from history itself, that this can only be Rome. But of course, back in the 1990s, there was a uh, brother, and he's a brother in Christ. He's not a heretic. He's a brother in Christ. And Saddam Hussein began to rebuild ancient Babylon, and so he wrote a book and argued that Babylon in Iraq is being rebuilt, and uh, this is obviously the city that the Revelation speaks of, and we're close, and he sold a ton of books as well. But that's impossible. If people would just read their Bible a little bit, they would discover that it could not be historical ancient Babylon known as Iraq. Why not? Because of what God said in Isaiah and Jeremiah. Let me read Isaiah 13 to you. Isaiah 13. And Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride. And you, of course, remember Nebuchadnezzar, and he is all enamored with himself, and he goes out there in his balcony, and he looks at this gorgeous, beautiful, magnificent city, and historians say it was one of the greatest cities ever built in the ancient world. The beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride, that's God's commentary. God describes it in that way even, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Now listen, it will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation, nor will the Arab pitch his tent there, nor will shepherds make their flocks lie down there. These verses predict that Babylon is going to be overthrown, and they were by the Medes, and that God would make it a desolation, and he likens it to the desolation that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Similar passage describing this city comes from Jeremiah 25. Listen to these words. This whole land, speaking of Babylon, will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will be when 70 years are completed. Remember, that was the time of the punishment where the Jews were carried away in the southern kingdom for 70 years, just as predicted by Jeremiah 25. When these 70 years are up, he said, and are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, the land of the Babylonians, and I will make it, listen, an everlasting desolation. In 539 BC, just like God said, the 70 years are up, the Medes are in control, Babylon is utterly destroyed. And it remains that way for a few hundred years, several hundred years. And then a guy by the name of Alexander the Great, who, by the way, is prophesied of in Daniel chapter 11, he comes on the scene. And you remember Alexander the Great who just conquered nation after nation. And when he comes to Babylon, he decides he's going to rebuild it. And no sooner does he decide to rebuild it, this 39-year-old man suddenly dies. It spooks his generals. They decide they're not going to make this their capital. And so they move to a place called Seleucia there along the Tigris River. 
Sodom and Gomorrah is likened to Babylon. It is likened to an everlasting destruction. Now you say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Saddam Hussein did try to build it up. Yeah, he did. He tried. He made a few buildings. The guy had an ego problem. If you know that on every single brick, every single brick he had his name imprinted. And I suppose had he not tried to rebuild Babylon, maybe he'd be alive. Here is a picture of one of his palaces in ruins. It didn't last long. Here's another picture with Marines going in. It's in ruins. And here is a satellite photo. And here is ancient Babylon. Actually, ancient Babylon is down on the right-hand corner, which he never got there. But northwest of there, you can see a few buildings. And that's what he did. And it is yet to this day to be inhabited. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. This place is going to be tried and judged and found wanting by God Almighty. And we're going to see what he does in subsequent weeks. That's the sentence on Babylon. Secondly, beyond the sentence on Babylon, he now reveals the spirit behind Babylon. What is the spirit that is operating behind Babylon? Well, it's so utterly vile and corrupt because it is being energized by the devil and his demons. Look again at verse 2. Notice how commercial Babylon, the headquarters of the Antichrist, which we identified in chapter 17 as the city of Rome. Notice how it's characterized. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit, and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. Now, she has become, in other words, when, when God is ready to judge her, she is so filled with demon activity, this is true of her. He, she has become this, a dwelling place of demons. Now, hold your finger here and turn back a few pages to Revelation chapter 12 for a moment. Go to Revelation chapter 12. You remember, this is an important chapter, when Satan and all his demons were literally cast down to the earth, out of the realm of the heavenlies. Look at Revelation 12. Let me dust off your memory for just a moment. Look at verse 7. The Bible says, and there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels warring, waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war. Michael is on God's side. He is the only angel in the Bible who, with the article, is called the archangel. I know we have a song, Archangels in Glory, and maybe there is more than one archangel, but there's only one that is revealed. And by the way, Satan is not God's equal. God has no equal. But Michael is. This is a fair fight. Michael, if you remember, it's recorded in Jude. Jude is not revealed in the Old Testament, but after Moses dies, Michael the archangel has a dispute with Satan over the body of Moses. In either case, this is a battle between equals. equals and Mikael in Hebrew, it's a Hebrew word that means who is like God. It's a magnificent name that God gives him. And so if there's any counterpart for the devil, it's this angel. And of course, the devil is described in this chapter, and we'll see the same thing when we come to the 20th chapter, as the dragon, the serpent of old, the devil, and he is Satan. And each name, each title is very illustrative of who he is. He is called, earlier in this chapter, if you look up in verse 3, he is called the red dragon. 
red being the color of blood, which is an expression of who he is because the thief comes only to kill and to destroy, Jesus said. Jesus said in John 8 that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. And of course, during the tribulation, his commitment to slaughter both Jews and Christians is at its height. And so we're told in verse 8 in this fight, and they were not strong enough, that is Satan and his angels, they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. Now, Satan was once called Lucifer. We hear the word Lucifer, and we say, ooh, that's kind of a dark name. It's actually a brilliant, gorgeous, magnificent name that, fall, that, that describes his unfallen state. That was his original name as a holy cherub of God. But he's renamed Satan, the devil. And at this point in human history, the devil who today has access into the heavenly realm, he's the accuser of the brethren. He comes and you remember, he, he, he comes in the presence of God with some of his demons there in Job chapter 1. But on this occasion, he is thrown out of heaven to the earth. Now, he has already had his big fall where the Lucifer became Satan. We studied that in Isaiah 14 and in Ezekiel 28 when we studied Uh, this chapter in the Revelation. But this is a different fall. We'll study all the falls before we're done when we come to the 20th chapter. But here he's cast down to the earth. He's no longer the prince of the power of the air. And where does Satan and all of his demons, and how many are there? A third of all the holy angels. And I put some numbers together for you, just letting Scripture speak for Scripture. We know that there are B, not M, but B, billions of angels. And a third of all the angels that fell are literally brought down to the earth. And where do they fill themselves? What place do they make as their headquarters? Yes, this place called Babylon. And so notice back here in verse 3 of chapter 18, verse 3, Revelation 18. She, Babylon, has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit, and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. A prison. This is where they dwell, a hold, some translations say. Another translation says a stomping ground, and every unclean spirit. And he describes them like hateful birds. Hateful birds. He uses the same analogy that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 13, to describe unclean spirits who war against God's people. Matthew 13, unclean spirit. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. This is Satan's headquarters, vile and corrupt. And like birds wanting to fall on their prey, these demons are luring people, deceiving people, convincing people to follow after the Antichrist. Again, this is foundational. We're going to work it all through as we go through the 18th chapter by God's grace. There's a sentence on Babylon. There's the spirit of Babylon. Finally, let's think about the seduction from Babylon. Let's think about the seduction that comes from Babylon. The Babylonian system will seduce kings and merchants, and they will gladly give up things of an eternal nature for money. Look at verse 3. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth 
have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. Now, God uses sexual terms to describe this commercial empire. And of course, during this time in human history, immorality literally, physically, will be widespread like never before in human history. The body of Christ will be gone. The last vestige of salt and light will disappear. And what people today are telling our young people, it's okay to be engaged with multiple partners. It's okay to be attracted to people of the same sex and so on and so forth. It's going to have full expression in this coming day. The seeds are being planted, but there'll be full expression in this coming day when these evil fallen demons will deceive people and try to convince people out of their own sin nature to follow after. How widespread will this deception be? Go back to chapter 13 for a second. I should have told you to hold your finger there, sorry. Go back to chapter 13 for just a moment. I want you to see again foundationally how widespread this is and how he's going to convince the kings and the merchants, and he's using terms really of idolatry, because when you put something above God, it's a form of idolatry. Paul will say to the Colossians, greed is idolatry. We think idolatry is when we worship down, and like in India, they'll say, this speaker, this is God. Let's worship this speaker. They have 300 million gods in India. Everything's just about a god. You say, well, that's pagan. Well, don't forget, a third of the world still practices this kind of idolatry. But there's more than one kind of idolatry. There's idolatry of the hearts. And God says, greed is idolatry. And here are these kings are being immoral and unfaithful to the Creator God, and they are worshiping the almighty buck. Well, how are they going to become rich so fast? Revelation 13, verse 16, and He causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves. We're talking about a global sweep here, the small and the great, that's every social category whether it's the untouchables caste in India or the noble family there, the royal family in England, every class, every economic category, the rich and the poor, from the poorest person in the world to the billionaire. It doesn't make any difference. And then he adds in the free men and the slaves. Yes, slavery will be very much present. You say that, you can't be serious. Slavery? Mm-hmm. God knew there would be slavery during that time, and I hope you know there's slavery today. Now, I'm not talking about sex trafficking. That's a huge problem, and our state is a leader in sex trafficking, South Carolina. If you have an engagement with a prostitute and you're caught, it's a $200 fine. So a bunch of us as pastors, we tried to convince them to raise it at least to $1,500. We have the lowest penalty of all 50 states. Can't we make it at least $1,500? Some states have three, four, five thousand $5,000. So some man visits a prostitute, and most of these prostitutes, you know, the average age they start, 12. Because some wicked man convinces some little girl and makes her a slave. But I'm not talking about that kind of slavery. There are 48 million people across the world in slavery. The number one 
countries in the world include India, China, Pakistan, Nigeria, Ethiopia, Russia, Thailand, the DR Congo, Myanmar, and Bangladesh. And most of it is economic slavery in terms of if you borrow money and you can't pay it back in those countries, you become a person's slave. And if you don't pay it back in your lifetime, then your child becomes that slave. God knew in the future that there would be slavery because God knows the future. And he causes all the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free man and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead, a mark, a karagma. It refers to a brand, to an etching in every place, both in and outside of the Bible, even of a snake bite or a brand that someone would put on their camel, an etching of some kind will be given to people. Some kind of special tattoo. Tattooing has become very popular. Now one in five Americans have a tattoo. And if you are in the 18 to 25 range, 40% have tattoos. I'm blessed to travel to many countries of the world to preach the gospel sometimes, to minister. And wherever I go now, people have tattoos. There's probably a conditioning that is taking place. Maybe it will look like this on the right hand, or maybe it will look like this in the forehead. But I do know that day is coming. Now, whether it's associated with a chip or they're using some kind of special paint that can only be scanned, I don't know. I can tell you of technologies, but so can other people. But I do know there will be an etching. 666, he causes all to have a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. Now, there's been a lot of ink spilt on why the right hand, I think just practically, because most people are right-handed. A few of us are blessed with left-handedness. But if you don't have a right hand, you have at least a forehead or you're not alive. So there's a place for everyone. And we're given the purpose in verse 17 of that chapter, and he provides it no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. All financial activity across the planet will be controlled through one man. You need gas for the car, you need the mark. You're cold and it's wintertime, you need electricity for your family, you need the mark. You're a diabetic, you have high blood pressure, you need some antibiotic, you need the mark. You want to feed your family and you've run out of killing squirrels in the backyard, you need the mark. You cannot buy or sell anything. And so in the truest sense, you can see how this kingdom will flourish economically and how people will, who give their allegiance to him, flourish with him. Listen to verse 18, here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Now, I want to tell you, go back to chapter 18 for a moment. Back to chapter 18. Back here in 18, you can see the universality of this economy. Who does it cover? All the kings and all the merchants of the earth, for all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. Satan 
and his antichrist and his false prophets and hordes of demons upon the earth will convince people to take the mark and you're either a member of the antichrist kingdom or you're a member of Christ's kingdom and there will be no neutrality, none whatsoever. Men will be lovers of pleasure and men will be lovers of money rather than lovers of God. Now, God is going to judge this place. Remember, again, chapter 16 and verse 18. Let me just read it to you. You don't have to turn there. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. This is the earthquake of all earthquakes. It wouldn't measure on the Richter scale. And the great city, in that context, Jerusalem, was split into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. Why? Because they all participated. All the nations of the world are involved in this economic system. And there are earthquakes just across the planet. Not just uh, Washington, New York, Paris. Every city begins to crumble. But then God pinpoints and he puts his bullseye on this place called Babylon. Babylon. Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And that's what verse 3 is describing here. These people are going to receive the fierce wrath of God Almighty because of their wickedness. They are more engaged in the next meal for some people or the next mansion for some king. They are shining the brass on the Titanic and the boat is headed down to ultimate destruction. Now, you're living in the first century. You're one of the seven churches. You have been promised that you will not be here for this time. Or you're living today in the 21st century, and you're a member of Community Bible Church, and you understand what God says about the rapture that will become so crystal clear to you in the 20th chapter, you will see it is absolutely impossible to hold to anything but a pre-tribulational rapture. And you say, well, what does this have to do with me? Everything. All Scripture is God-breathed, and it is all profitable. So let me see how we can apply this today. Let me make three applications as we close. Number one, I'm reminded that the closer we come to Christ's return, the more we can expect demonic activity to show itself. The closer we get to the return of Christ, listen, the rapture takes place first. Nothing has to happen for the rapture. But as you see, prophecy fulfilled for the latter days, for the second coming, you know, the rapture that precedes the second coming is that much closer. And God gives a prophecy in 1 Timothy 4.1 of the latter days, not just the last days that began on Pentecost, not just the last of the last days, but the latter days, which refer to the very end days before Jesus, the Messiah, comes to rule on the earth. And Paul said, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. Not just from faith, but the faith, this body of truth that Jude tells us that was delivered once and for all by the apostles that we are to contend for. People will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. 
One very large church in D.C., they run 10,000 people. Let me read how they describe one of their adult Bible fellowships. They say in the small group, the gift of prophecy in advertising, it is not reserved for just the super spiritual believers. Scripture promises that the Holy Spirit will be poured out to every believer in the world. We believe that there is power through demonstrating the love of God through gifts of prophecy, words of knowledge, and healing. This small group will be going over a basic training for the prophetic ministry curriculum that aims to help believers to understand and operate in the prophetic ministry. We welcome everyone at all stages of their faith and are excited to walk with you on this journey. Get ready to hear God's voice, speak his word with power, and release hope to those around you. Half-truths all the way through here. Yes, the Spirit of God is poured out on all flesh. Anyone who will believe on the Lord Jesus will become a temple of the Holy Spirit. But what this small group is advertising, I don't read the whole thing this morning, is they are saying that you can become a direct conduit of revelation. God Almighty can speak directly so that you can stand up and say, thus saith the Lord. Listen, that, my friend, is a doctrine of a demon. That is false. God, as we will see, has completed the canon of Scripture, and we are not to add to it or subtract to it. Here's another small group in another evangelical church. They're promoting Sarah Bessie's book called Jesus Feminist. Written with poetic rhythm, this is the book they're studying, written with poetic rhythm, a prophetic voice in a deeply biblical foundation, this loving yet fearless book urges today's church to move beyond man-made restrictions and fully welcome women's diverse voices and experiences. Gender roles have been debated for centuries, and now Sarah Bessie offers a clarion freedom call for all who want to realize their giftedness and potential in the kingdom of God. Through a thoughtful review of biblical teaching and church practices, Bessie shares how following Jesus made a feminist out of her. And so you read the book, and it advocates women becoming pastors. And if you know Sarah Bessie's work and teaching unapologetically with the support of Rachel Held Evans and Jen Hatmaker, they totally approve same-sex marriage. So Evans, Evans, Rachel Held, and Hatmaker endorse her book. And the foreword is written by Brian McLaren, one of the leaders in the Emergent Church, who I spoke about 10 years ago, and I got all kinds of mail and Who are you to divide the body of Christ only to see that he has now come out in favor of same-sex marriage and he performed the wedding for his gay son who married his quote-unquote husband? This group is a doctrine of demons. Here's another small group using Rachel Hollis's book entitled Girl, Wash Your Face. It's published by Thomas Nelson. Thomas Nelson was one of the leading evangelical presses If it was on Thomas Nelson or Moody, you could trust it. Ladies, are you ready to stop believing lies about yourself and become who you were created to be? Then please join this group of women for some encouragement, accountability, and empowerment as we dive into Rachel Hollis's book, Girl, Wash Your Face. This hilarious, energetic, and fun book will mirror our group. And here's how the author, Rachel 
Hollis promotes herself. I love Jesus and I cuss a little. I love Jesus and I drink alcohol. I love Jesus and some of my best friends are gay. Look, I'm not ashamed to say that we shouldn't try to reach out and be friendly. Jesus was a friend of sinners. But she and her husband run these retreats and they invite all kinds of couples, including on their websites, unmarried, married, and same-sex couples to come together for a weekend to learn how to make out like teenagers. That is a doctrine of a demon. Here is a leading Methodist pastor who writes for the United Methodist Church, and on their homepage that went out to tens of thousands of homes, he wrote, one must be careful in using the Bible as a source of moral standards. How are we to think about and act towards the LGBTQ community? We know that the majority of Americans do not oppose homosexual relations. I don't know if that's true, that if the majority is in favor, but the majority isn't always right. The majority of Germans under Hitler were in favor of exterminating the Jews. That didn't make it right. Yet others believe that while every person is a child of God... Speaking of evangelicals, he's saying, but I don't believe, I don't believe every person is a child of God. We're all made in the image and likeness of God, but as many as received him, to them he has given the right to become, because they weren't before, a child of God to those who believe in his name. Others believe that while every person is a child of God, homosexual behavior is a choice and is sinful, and marriage is only to be affirmed when between a man and a woman. A key question for me, is that position simply an expression of ancient and current cultural norms, or is that the timeless and moral position sanctioned by God? That's an important question, I should say. When Jesus said, we wash one another's feet, how many of you washed someone's feet this week? What's the timeless principle And how does it apply today? So he goes on, he says, what is moral in a timeless sense? Here's his definition. What is moral in a timeless sense is whatever is helpful to human beings. And what is immoral is whatever is hurtful to human beings. Wrong. That that is a timeless value. It cuts across all times and circumstances. It helps us separate temporary customs from values that are lasting. If a person is born with same gender, same gender orientation, are people born gay? No, they are not. If people are born gay, then God would be an unjust God as holding them accountable in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says, don't be deceived, the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals shall inherit the kingdom of God. Look, if God made you this way, how can God hold you morally accountable? He cannot, because God didn't make you this way. And I was just disgusted this week with some parent who's trying to let their little seven-year-old girl become a boy. It is sick. If a person is born with the same gender orientation, why must they be prohibited from having an intimate relationship with another person, forced into isolation and loneliness, just because many people unfairly oppose that? 
to love your neighbors, to do the helpful thing and to avoid doing the hurtful thing, even when cultural conditioning makes that uncomfortable. Helping, not hurting, looks and sounds like Jesus to me, he writes. My friend, that is a doctrine of a demon. Paul says, at the end of time, people would abandon the faith, the Bible, and they would pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now listen, it may seem bad today, but this world has not seen anything yet. Because after the church is removed, and at one point when Satan and all of his hordes of fallen demons are literally cast down to the earth, there is going to be demonic activity like the world has never, ever seen. And God warns us, listen, Dad, you need to protect your children. You need to guard your children. You need to help them to understand what God's Word says. And some of you would do well as a dad to go home and say, let's watch 15 minutes of the sermon. Do you understand what Pastor Crow means when he says this or this or this? And some of your kids are just glazing over because I can't do for you as a dad what you need to do. And sometimes if we would just take 15, 20 minutes and just, just review a little segment of the sermon, ah, your kid has a chance to ask some questions and some things would come alive for some of them. And we are warned that sometimes even in the church, men can be drawn away. Secondly, Christians today must guard themselves from a love for temporal riches. God says of this worldwide system that the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality. The merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. What does God say? Do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away. The one who obeys, who does the will of God, lives forever. We're not to be fascinated by this world. Now, if God gave you something, he gave it to you to enjoy, but don't hold on to it too tightly. 50, 75 years from now, if Christ tarries, everything you own, someone else will own. C.T. Studd, the great cricket player in England who became, in the 19th century, a missionary to Africa. God used him in a powerful way to bring thousands of Africans into the kingdom. And his ministry to this day continues. And many of you know at least one line from his famous poem, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ is last. It's a long poem. You should read it in its entirety. But do you know what motivated him to write that poem? He read the tract of an atheist that was mocking Christians. And this is what he read. The atheist wrote, did I firmly believe, as millions say they do, that the knowledge and practice of religion in this life influences destiny in another? Religion would mean to me everything. I would cast away earthly enjoyments as dross, earthly cares as follies, and earthly thoughts and feelings as vanity. Religion would be my first waking thought and my last image before sleep sank me into unconsciousness. 
I should labor in its cause alone. I would take thought for the mar of eternity alone. I would esteem one soul gained for heaven worth of life of suffering. Earthly consequences should never stay my hand nor seal my lips. Earth, its joys and its griefs would occupy no moment of my thoughts. I would strive to look upon eternity alone and on the immortal souls around me soon to be everlastingly happy or everlastingly miserable. I would go forth to the world and preach to it in season and out of season. And my text would be, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? C.T. Stodd was absolutely convinced that what this so-called atheist described should be entirely consistent in the life of a believer. God is describing in this passage of Scripture about how unbelievers are acting at the end of time. Jesus would tell a parable about a certain man who had a, a barn and it wasn't big enough, so he built more barns and stuffed them with more stuff and on and on and on he went. And, and then he gave the application, you know, he, he said, the guy dies one day and he's, he's rich, but not towards God. And then Jesus said, for this reason, I say to you, you disciples who are born again, who are saved, here's how you ought to live. God is reminding the early church and he's reminding the 21st century church that it is the wrath of God that is being invited on their life because they value things more than they do a relationship with God. And there are timeless lessons here for us to learn. Look, there's two sides. You've got to choose. There's two kingdoms the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the evil one. There's two classes of people, the saved and the lost. There's two destinies, heaven and hell. And you have to decide which side you'll be on. And if you're on God's side, if we're on the Lord's side, as the old hymn used to say, then we should live that way. Now, our Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to pause and to think about the revelation that you gave to Jesus and ultimately to the Apostle John. And for us to read today, help us not just to be hearers of the word, but doers. Help us to evaluate even the last week that we lived and whether, whether working in our homes or in our place of employment, whether we did it in a fashion that glorified you, that honored your name, whether we even cared to pray for some lost person, whether we even attempted to reach out to someone in need of Christ or to comfort or to encourage another believer. Oh, God, help us to put our priorities in line with your priorities. Help us not to be deceived in these days where doctrines of demons are growing. And it has seemed to me, Father, just in the last even few months, there's been an unleashing of evil on our land. Help us to be alert. Help us to watch over our hearts with all diligence. And help, Father, someone today who's never met Jesus to call upon his name in faith. You said if they would change their mind that their sin is offensive and needs forgiveness, and if they would believe and trust that Jesus' death and resurrection can forgive them, save them, and change them, that you would receive them today. Help someone today to say in the deep recesses of their heart, by faith, Lord Jesus, save me. I ask it in his holy name.
Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. You may be in Grays. You may be in Graniteville. You may be in Hilton Head, Buford. Wherever you are, if you have a decision to make, I want to invite you right now to make it. If you're not a member of a Bible-believing church, you should ask, why not? Every child of God should be. If you've not been baptized as an emblem of your faith, confessed in by baptism, you should be. If you're here and you still got some serious questions about your own soul, come this morning. We'll help you. Matt's going to lead us. If you have a decision to make, step out now and meet me here in the front.